Alrighty, we're going to get into uh, Philippians, but before I do, uh, we're going to pray uh, and ask for God's help in understanding the passage we have before us today. So let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here tonight uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have just placed a bet, and amidst the noise uh, and the chaos of the crowds filling the grimy, dimly lit street, uh, you've thrown whatever scraps of cash you had left in your back pocket at a high-stakes cockfight. Uh, Amidst the noise and the screeching, uh, you can't help but wonder how you'll afford to drown your sorrows with that next drink of cheap wine if you happen to lose this fight. The dread of going back to the factory the next morning to working like a slave with this newly invented machinery, the same machinery which incidentally took your small business away in the first place, well, this consumes your mind. You can't help but think that things couldn't get any worse, and so, as an emotional outlet, you find yourself sleeping with your neighbour that night, and then possibly another before the night is out and the sun rises, and you have to face reality again. Well, welcome to life as one of the many working class of 18th century England. You see, England around this time, it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which completely changed the social and cultural landscape of the country. So new methods of producing things en masse had just come out. Uh, At the same time, there was a huge economic depression. Things had been completely turned upside down for the lives of many during this time. And while the upper class in England were preoccupied with going to their local Anglican churches, getting the best, most expensive philosophical education for their kids, the ever-growing working class told a very different story. You see, drunkenness and adultery, uh, it was absolutely rampant at this time, if not completely normalised. The country, as I said, was also going through years of economic depression, which only poured fuel on the fires. Now, sadly, the Anglican Church at this time, uh, it was a place primarily for the elites, for the rich, the wealthy, uh, those in government. But even more sadly, is that they were doing nothing about the ever-growing needs of the working class right at their doorstep. And it's in this context that John and Charles Wesley and others had begun their ministries. For the Wesleys... Uh, quite often the Anglican pulpit was closed off to them. So what they would do is simply take to the fields and the open areas to preach. And amazingly, by the providence of God, they would attract enormous crowds that wouldn't normally fit into the Anglican churches anyway. In the climate of economic depression and mass drunkenness and adultery, many of those coming out to hear John preach were encouraged to place their trust in God's hands and have their lives shaped by the biblical truths taught through singing of hymns. We actually sung one of Charles Wesley's hymns tonight, And Can It Be? They would sing hymns, other songs, they would preach the word, and they would ultimately apply the word in very practical and methodic ways in the lives of those listening. Hence the name of the new movement, the Methodists. Amazingly, by God's grace, many of the poorer, uh, the trodden-on working class in England had placed their trust in Jesus and went on to buck the trends of drunkenness and debauchery. 
The gospel had penetrated their hearts and had radically changed their lives in these seemingly impossible climates of hardship, of humiliation, of suffering, even to the point of them being deeply rooted with a joy in Christ. This in turn, well, it made them good workers in the Industrial Revolution during this incredibly difficult time where other countries were collapsing as factory workers were literally worked to death, under the same conditions, England's population began to thrive. You see, the gospel had changed the landscape of the country. It had reshaped many Christians' perspectives on suffering, on humility, on joy, and even what it means to partner with one another in the gospel, as the Wesleys did. In other words, to put it simply, the gospel had changed their lives. Now, as we start our series on Philippians here at KPC, um, this is one of the major themes that we'll see all throughout the book of Philippians. That is, the gospel changes lives. It changes our perspective on a number of core issues that are part of the Christian life. Now, I've got up on the screen there uh, the outline. You'd normally get that from outlines.kpc. It is still up there if you want to use your phones, but it's also here because I think this will help us understand uh, where we're going today. Because uh, even though we had 1, 1 to 11 read to us, we are going to be looking a lot more broadly as well uh, as we kick off this series to get an idea of the bigger picture of Philippians here. See, the gospel, it changes the way we understand suffering, humility. It changes our perspective on life uh, and on death on joy, on what it means to have true fellowship in the gospel. And so I'm hoping that we'll soon see uh, that much like the working class of the 18th century England, uh, the gospel had also radically changed the lives of the Philippians in the first century and will continue to do so all throughout history, including 21st century Kenmore. So we'll be making our way through Philippians this morning looking at uh, several things. One, We'll be looking at some characteristics of the Christian life, which you can see up there behind me. We'll be seeing how these characteristics that I've got listed have their origins in Jesus' own life. And finally, we'll be looking at how the gospel changes us with regards to these characteristics as well. So point one, some characteristics of the Christian life. Now, a while back, uh, I was part of a church uh, which had promised me that if I had enough belief... Uh, I'd be able to remove my glasses and see again with 2020 vision that God would heal my short-sightedness because he's in the business of healing people. Now, I liked the idea, and I knew that they weren't fooling around when they said this. They, they actually thought this was possible. Except the problem was that I didn't have enough belief. My faith wasn't large enough to move this particular mountain and it's a real shame because if you know me, if you've ever tried these on, my script is strong enough for you guys to see through time and space. It's really that bad. But in a weird twist of irony, the spouse of this pastor also had short-sightedness. And after a few months of going to this church, I noticed that their short-sightedness had never been fixed or healed either. But they were confident. They were confident that one day this would happen. But the question I have is, is that what the gospel is all about? Is that what the gospel is about? Is this why we meet together? Is participating in the gospel all about having my worldly needs fixed? Or is it about something else? You see, the prayer that Paul prays uh, for the Philippians in the reading we had read, 
uh, from chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, the things Paul prays for is not the removal of their suffering, which they were going through, nor is it their physical healing or anything to that effect, but rather it's that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that ultimately they can serve God in righteousness to the ultimate, ultimate end for his glory. And once we understand this, then the other characteristics of the Christian life, like suffering, will begin to make a lot more sense in Philippians. So in the passage that uh, James has just read, uh, we see, for example, suffering uh, in 1 verse 7. Paul tells us that he is in chains for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is a bit unusual. If, If the gospel was about the removal of suffering, then this cuts against the kind of health, wealth, prosperity gospel that was taught at this church I went to. Moreover, we see in verses 5 and 7 uh, the theme of sacrificial participation or, or fellowship in the gospel. As Paul speaks of the Philippians as sharers in God's grace with him. We'll later find to come out, uh, we'll find out, sorry, that uh, they lavished on Paul an extraordinary gift uh, through the hands of Epaphroditus, uh, which probably cost them dearly. And moreover, that they've been doing this over and over again as they continually gave above and beyond their means in staggering displays of gospel generosity. They suffered through sacrificially partnering with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. We see in verses 3, 4 and 7 the pervasive theme of joy in this letter. It's another category I've put up there. Surely this, this, this is where we get into the prosperity gospel, right? Joy, except he's joyous in the face of his own martyrdom as he suffers in chains. It's kind of the opposite of the prosperity gospel in so many ways. And yet Paul can't help but share the joy that he's feeling with the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel with him. It's a sign, as we'll soon see, that Christ is working in them. Finally, the last one I've got up on there, um, this isn't exhaustive, this is just a couple of categories I've picked out from the the passage we had today. But the last theme I've got here as a sample is the, the theme of humility. And we see this in these opening verses as well. But it comes into play a little more subtly because it's found in the way that Paul opens the letter. You see, in almost every other epistle, Paul will open his letters with something on the lines of Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus or something to that effect. We see it in Romans, we see it in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. In almost all of his other letters, he specifically mentions his apostleship, which is just another way of... of, It's him saying that he had seen the Lord Jesus and has been sent by the Lord Jesus as kind of like a messenger to teach the good news. It's a very privileged position in some respects, but what's unusual about Philippians is that Paul makes no mention of this highly esteemed apostolic authority. In fact, channeling the characteristic of humility, which we're looking at to the extreme, he not only foregoes his title of apostle, but then he adds in this idea of calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus, using a word that literally means slave. So he opens his letter calling himself a slave of Christ Jesus. So in these first 11 verses, we see some of the core characteristics of the Christian life. And they're not anything even close to the prosperity gospel. To live the Christian life is to understand suffering. 
It's to understand sacrificial partnership or fellowship in the gospel. It's to understand deep, immovable joy, even in the face of sorrow and humility. But how exactly are we supposed to muster the ability to do these things? How can we suffer well? How can we live humbly for that matter? Well, the answer is found in the example of Jesus himself. This is where we get to point two on the outline there. These characteristics are all found in Jesus. Well, as a kid uh, growing up, uh, my favourite band was a band called Muse. Uh, I loved everything about them, and to some extent, I still do. Uh, the, lead musician in, the lead musician in the band, though, he was really my favourite. Uh, his name was Matt Bellamy, and to some extent, sadly, he really was a huge idol of mine. Uh, vocally, this dude's range was unbelievable, uh, hitting notes that I never thought possible for a male singer. Uh, he could also play the electric guitar, like it was an extension of his body. But the icing on the cake for me was the fact that he was also classically trained in the piano. And so all of his songs have this weird mix of rock and classical kind of melded together. In my university days, I would make my way to the music rooms that QUT had. I'd pop my headphones on and I'd listen to these songs on repeat in front of a piano. And one note at a time, after hours and hours and hours, I would slowly learn how to play them. I did the same with guitar, and if I was really feeling brave, I'd belt out some of the lyrics along with it. I found myself, in other words, imitating Matt Bellamy. Eventually, I even found myself dressing like him, believe it or not, wearing the same clothes as he did, and almost, I didn't quite do this, but I almost dyed my hair a bright red in a bid to look like him during the release of their second album. But after doing all this for some time, after playing hours of guitar and piano with my headphones in, I found my musical abilities were being formed and shaped by this band. I was learning chords uh, and melodies that were unique to this band alone, and even to this day there are a few things I can still play on the piano, despite never having formally learnt it. These abilities just came with the territory of loving and spending a lot of time and effort with my favourite band. Now we see here in 2 Philippians 5 to 11, we see Paul telling them to do the same thing with Jesus. To have the same mindset as him, to imitate him, because much like spending all that time behind the piano with my favourite band blaring in my ears, spending time with Jesus' life, reflecting on his life and teaching, well, this will also shape how we live as his followers. And thankfully, Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to have the same haircut or beard as Jesus to live for him. Now, we're not going to spend too much time uh, in chapter 2 of Philippians. Uh, I'm going to leave Steve to take us through uh, some of the the more details in the coming weeks. But I want us to have a very quick look uh, at this hymn that we do see in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles there, flip over to chapter 2. And we're going to look at how some of the characteristics of the Christian life that I've raised from our passage that uh, we had read earlier... Uh, in rooted, are rooted in Christ himself. So if we look, for example, at uh, chapter 2, verse 8, we read that Jesus says, He being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
So if we look at suffering, it should be pretty obvious that being executed would amount to suffering. Now, if any of you know uh, Wes, he's a New Testament lecturer, he goes to the morning service, uh, he would talk about Jesus' suffering and he would point you out to the shame of the cross in their honour-shame culture. He would point you to the wrath of God being worse than any worldly execution, which is certainly true. But the focus here in Philippians 2, I think, is actually about the mode of his actual death as a human being. Because, you see, Paul goes to great lengths to emphasise that Christ humbled himself, becoming a man, even to the point of dying as a man, being crucified on a Roman cross. So it's clear that suffering was a part of Jesus' life and that Paul wants us to see this characteristic in the Christian life uh, as a whole. We will suffer. But the question is, how does our understanding of suffering, how does this get shaped by our knowledge of Jesus, by our intimacy with Jesus, by our relationship with him? When it comes to partnership, uh, we read in 2, 7, 8 that Jesus partnered with humanity by becoming one of us. He had fellowship with us by becoming a human being. Uh, Not only this, but this type of partnership of Jesus emptying himself, as the text says, well, this also has enormous overlaps with our understanding of his humility as well. You see, for all this talk about Jesus' humanity, we mustn't forget that Jesus was also God himself, right? possessing all the attributes of God. He was all-powerful, all-knowing, he was the creator or is the creator and sustainer of all things, and yet he made himself nothing as the text says, taking on the form of a servant, or again, it's the same word, taking on the form of a slave. So I'm hoping to some extent uh, we can see that godly suffering, partnership and humility, well, all these have their origins and their end goal in Jesus. That's where we get it from. So what about joy? Well, if you're familiar with Philippians... Uh, with the book as a whole, uh, you'll know that it's absolutely saturated with references to joy uh, and its kind of sister word, rejoicing. These words appear about 16 times in the letter, more than any other place in the New Testament. And so it's no coincidence that the letter that concerns itself so much with joy and rejoicing also concerns itself with this idea of having the same mindset as Christ Jesus in 2.5, following his example. There's a sense in which imitating Christ and his humility uh, and suffering and sacrificial partnership with us in the gospel, well, this is what leads to true and lasting joy. But if we step outside of Philippians just for one moment, we also know from Hebrews 12 too that Christ endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him, scorning its shame and then sitting down at the right hand of God. So we've seen from the first point, the Philippians contain some major themes about suffering, humility, partnership and joy. It's just a sample I've taken from that. We've seen that ultimately these had their origins and their completion in Jesus himself and that we are to imitate him. But incredibly, Paul tells us in chapter 3 to join together in following his example. You think, why why wouldn't he just stop at chapter 2? Why does he go on to talk about his own example? He goes on to talk about keeping our eyes on others 
who also live as he did in 3.17. You see, while Jesus is the cornerstone of examples, kind of the example where all other examples derive from, the reality of the Christian life is that God often works with the grain of our humanity. And so in his grace, God has given us one another to imitate from. He includes uh, godly examples all throughout history. We see this from 18th century England, as we saw earlier on. We see this in Philippians. We see this all throughout the Reformation. We see God's people working together for the continuation and advancement of his gospel. But we also see each other sitting here tonight. See, imitating other godly Christians, in other words, is just as important as imitating Christ. And this brings us to point three on your outlines, these characteristics in us. Now, I remember someone warning me once. Uh, They said that I would become the product of the top five or so people that I hung around. So if I mixed with the wrong crowd, if I were to hang out with the wrong types of people, well, then I could potentially turn into an engineering, coffee-roasting, park-run enthusiast. But throughout the rest of Philippians, sorry for that burn, one of the things Paul subtly does is he includes several examples of what it means to live the godly life by including these examples that were close to them. He shows key examples of what it means to live as citizens of heaven. Now, I'll let you look at this in your own time, um, but if you go to after the hymn in chapter 2, Uh, Down to verses 19 to 24, Paul lists off some of his characteristics and loves about Timothy. And if you look carefully, you'll identify a lot of the themes that we've brought up today being found in his life. If you were to move on and highlight uh, verses 25 to 30 in chapter 2, he does the same with Epaphroditus. However, I just want to stop here and mention a couple of things to highlight my point. In the context of this letter... Uh, Epaphroditus is a man who brought a gift uh, from the Philippians, a gift that they'd sent to Paul, and he'd risked his life in doing so. Uh, Presumably, he could even be the one holding this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians and bringing it back to them. And so in these verses, Paul calls Epaphroditus a co-worker and fellow soldier, implying that he has partnered with the Philippians and with Paul himself for the advancement of the gospel. If we look at uh, suffering and humility from our list in this case, it's pretty obvious. Paul says that Epaphroditus nearly died in verse 27, but that he longed for all of you in his distress because you Philippians heard that he was ill. Have you ever met anyone like that? People that go through suffering, that they've gone through um, some kind of chronic illness or immense trauma, but they're their main concern is the people around them, not themselves and their own needs. Well, Epaphroditus, we're told, almost died delivering this package to Paul, and yet his concern was with how the Philippians would take the news of this. So if we look to the categories of suffering, humility, partnership and joy, uh, to a large extent they're all there in Epaphroditus and Timothy. They're all imitating the characteristics found in Jesus because their lives have been transformed by the gospel. The final two chapters of this book, chapters 3 and 4, 
uh, among other things which Steve will unpack in the coming weeks, the final two chapters of the book, uh, they concern themselves with how the gospel has changed Paul's own life and the life of the church of Philippi. Uh, In chapter 3, for example, we read of Paul's prior position as the Pharisee of Pharisees. This dude would have been well-paid, he would have had a very comfortable life, he would have had a lot of power and influence, he probably even had some nice lavish clothes to wear. But following in the footsteps of God himself, of the God who emptied himself, Paul now considers all of these privileges rubbish for the sake of knowing and participating in the gospel of Jesus himself. To the point where even in chains, facing his own martyrdom, he rejoices in his new status as a citizen of heaven. If we go on to the the Philippians themselves, uh, if you were paying attention to Steve's uh, Who We Are sermons a couple of weeks back, you'd know that the Philippians were an incredibly generous bunch of people always giving above and beyond their means, according to 2 Corinthians 8.3, in these staggering displays of gospel generosity. And I think since the day the gospel entered Philippi, they've always been like this. If you read through Acts 16 and all the bits about the Philippians and Paul's other letters, you see there's a consistency in their selflessness. There's a consistency in a humility in the actions that these guys take with Paul nearly all of the time. The gospel changed their lives. And so we get to the end, we get to chapter 4, and we see that the Philippians have now sent another package to Paul. They're supplying for his needs again in 4.18. But what's amazing about this event is that Paul turns back on them and he says he doesn't desire the gift itself. He's, He's amply supplied, he has everything he needs, even in jail. But rather, what he really likes about this gift is what it says about them and their hearts. It's a sign. Their generosity is a sign that they have been transformed by the gospel. The gift itself is a testament to their understanding of suffering as well. It's a testament to their humility, their understanding of what it means to sacrificially partner with uh, with Paul in the gospel and to do this with joy in supporting those around them. The gospel changes lives. So we began today in 18th century England. We moved from there back to 1st century Philippi and have seen that the gospel changes lives. We've seen it changes perspectives on things that pertain to the gospel. Things like suffering, humility, partnership, fellowship in the gospel and joy. But I want to land this just a little bit closer to home for us. You see, it's one thing to to look out and be amazed at what God has done out there. It's a good thing to do. It's good to read uh, history, to read about our martyrs and how we actually got here. But it's another thing entirely to come inside and look at our own city, the city of Brisbane, our own communities, and even our own church here tonight, and to pray with hope that the gospel has the power to radically transform the lives of you sitting here and me. But this all starts with prayer. So if we look back to the reading that we had this, uh, this evening, the reading from 1 Philippians 1 to 11, most of this reading today was a prayer of Paul's. 
He's giving thanks for the Philippian church. He thanks them for their generosity and their partnership in the gospel, but then continues to pray that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And the ultimate goal for this is for them to become pure and blameless for the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, all ultimately for the glory and praise of God. And I want to ask here at KPC, is this our ultimate goal? The sanctification of each person sitting around you today. You see, we should all be striving uh, to have our own love abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. We should all be striving and encouraging one another to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And if we're not, then what are we doing? If your sole reason for showing up to church tonight was to catch up with Sally Ann, I don't know any Sally Anns. I don't think we have any Sally Anns. I hope we don't on the stream because that would be embarrassing for me. But if you were coming here to catch up with Sally Ann and that's it, or to tick off the, the compulsory church attendance list, or to make some other family member happy, you know, doing this just to make them happy, then maybe it's time that you prayed this prayer for yourself and considered what it means to increase in knowledge and depth of insight. This isn't just some intellectual exercise, though. Increasing in knowledge and depth of insight, according to Paul, is the very thing that enables you to discern what is best and that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. On the other hand, if if you were to turn up to church uh, here simply to hear a good, engaging sermon, but you don't spare a thought for the growth of the people sitting next to you, then maybe it's time you prayed this prayer, both for yourself and the people around you. You see, ultimately, we come to church to partner in the gospel, to have our hearts shaped and moulded more into the likeness of Jesus, who suffered for us, who humbled himself for us, who partnered with us in our humanity, all for the joy that was set before him. You see, Jesus knew that he was doing the Father's will in making us righteous, but he did this all to the glory and praise of God. And so the question is, what are we doing? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the example he has given us in his life, death, resurrection and exaltation. Lord, I pray as we work through Philippians over the coming weeks that you would help us to see what it means to partner in the gospel. Help our understanding of suffering and humility, of partnership and of deep joy, even in the midst of sorrow. Help these things to be shaped by Jesus and by one another. Lord, I pray that we would look to Jesus in the scriptures, Lord, and be shaped by him to spend time with him, but that we would also surround ourselves with godly imitators of Christ, that we may learn from them too. And Lord, I pray this. I pray that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight 
so that we may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. For all of these things, for the glory of you, Lord. Amen.